Midwife calling. Hello and welcome to Poplar Opinion, a Call the Midwife podcast, where we talk about every single episode of Call the Midwife without spoilers. I'm Jan Moffat. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat, not that kind of doctor. And I am going to cry this episode. <laughs> I'm already starting. We are talking about the season finale of season five, the eighth episode of season five, or series five, if you want to be all British about it, <laughs> of Call the Midwife. I suspect, like Jan stepped on me to say, I suspect that we might be a little goofy this episode to make up for the emotional weight of the episode of Call the Midwife. This episode was directed by Darcia Martin and written by Heidi Thomas. We saw both of them last week in right. episode seven of this season. Um, and let's, even before you go into the recap, uh, as we often say, this podcast is spoiler-free for the sh- series, but not spoiler-free for the episode. We will tell you at the start of the episode what happens in this episode. And why are we so sad this episode? Let's get that immediately out of the way. Yeah. Because this is the episode uh, that, if you've seen this show before, Jan and I knew it was coming this time, but we didn't uh, the first time we watched it. Sister Evangelina dies in this episode, and it is heartbreaking and sad. It is absolutely heartbreaking, and everything in the episode kind of hinges on it and is, and is uh, changed by it. So we will recap the entire episode with that point in mind, even if we stop the recap earlier than that. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into the recap. Mature Jenny narrates about women having more choices in 1961 and everything seeming possible. Sheila and Dr. Turner discuss the contraceptive pill, and it has a new regulation. It is not for unmarried women, after all. Violet's friend Tessie chats with her and Fred about her son Mitchell, who has come home from Australia and has a fiancé arriving soon. They arrange with Tom to have them marry as soon as she's off the boat due to her being very pregnant. Or in the family way, as they say. Rhoda and baby Susan come back to the clinic and have Susan checked out. Rhoda talks to Dr. Turner and Sheila, revealing her distress and her trouble sleeping, so she's prescribed Distaval. Barbara talks to Sister Evangelina about her spoiled apron, and Sister Evangelina reveals she isn't holding infants anymore due to her arm. Later at Nanotis, Sister Evangelina is annoyed with the nurses for being so loud and chatty when she's trying to get rest to gather her thoughts. Lastly, Barbara sees a pregnant Mrs. Tripti Veluk, a Saleti woman who is living with bugs in her home, and a husband who is on shift work. So, this voiceover, um, it, the conversation about choices, the ending of the voiceover talking about choices leads straight into the contraceptive pill. I don't feel like that, uh, emphasis on choice, it's a minor theme in the episode, not a major one. Yeah. Maybe it's a red herring. It, like, makes you think the theme of this episode is going to be about choices, and there's a bit of a a real shift in the episode halfway through. Yeah, exactly. So this episode seems to be about the contraceptive pill and about uh, Tessie, uh, who's 
son is going to get married and his fiance is very pregnant and that all is clearly connected to the theme of the pill and mm-hmm. they're like are they they have to get married the second she lands because Tessie through the whole episode is obsessed with like they the baby has to be married uh, born in wedlock and whatever she has to do to make that happen uh that all connects to the theme of choice. Um, and that, like, choices available that weren't available before right into the contraceptive pill seems like a pretty clear bridge. Mm-hmm. But the first half of the voiceover is about the mark that women make. That they, mm. like, women uh, write their lives in the little things that they do and the little choices that they make. Mm-hmm. And it's about the impact that women's and specifically in the east end but women have on the world around them and the legacy that they leave yeah and that's clearly sister evangelina's legacy and we see all the little moments of impact she has uh before her death and then all the moments afterwards of the people that she's affected yes um do you want to talk at all about tessie and uh mitchell and uh her his Australian bride who comes in, um, does she actually arrive yet in this section? Not quite. Not quite. You stopped just before she arrives. But she's, she, they, he was in Australia and, uh, he left back for England because he hated Australia. Yeah. (laughs) And he did not know she was pregnant when he left, but, but travel times being what they are, she is going to be uh, extremely pregnant by the time she arrives to join him. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything to say about that? I didn't really look it up, but this idea of he was sent, he went off to Australia on like a promise of work and then was on a sheep farm and hated it and came back to the East End to do East End things and Fred is all happy to have him back. To be a plumber, right? To be a plumber, was it? I can't I couldn't remember. To be a plumber, actually, uh, Fred says you're going to take care of the cuzzies. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. Did you look that up? Yes. That is Cockney slang for toilet. Oh. Um, But it comes from, like, I don't know if I'll try to make you guess. Can you take any guess why you would call a toilet a cuzzy? It comes by way of Spanish, casa, meaning house. House. So Spanish house, casa, to cuzzy. For outhouse. Right. I just love that. It's uh, wild. It's yeah. wild. <laughs> so you're going to take care of the cuzzies. Meaning the toilets. <laughs> um, the like thing about it. It maybe doesn't uh, need to make too much of. But like the emphasis that Tessie has on. I want them married the moment the boat docks. <laughs> uh, and. Tom is like, I'm sure people won't, you know, I'm sure that, I don't actually remember if he says God, but he certainly says people won't, will understand the situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tessie says, yeah, but he'll, the kid will still be a bastard. Yeah. Which I find so interesting that like, the kids being, I know that, you know, bastard has a stigma and like, as long as you're married, like literally in this episode, two seconds before birth then they're not. But isn't the stigma, like, the sex before marriage? So I don't really ever understand the whole, like, 
they're a bastard only if they're not born. Yeah. You're like... This is to me, too. This is something uh, that comes up. I'm going to bring it as I rarely but delightedly do when I get a chance to. I'm going to bring it to Arthurian literature because it matters in Arthurian literature and in the conception of Arthur that Arthur is born after Igraine and Uther are married. It does not matter that he's conceived before they're married. So he's conceived when Igraine, his mother, is married to uh, the Duke Gorlois, but he can still be the legitimate heir if he is born when the, his when Uther is married to Igraine, uh, because it does the, yeah the conception doesn't matter mm-hmm. the birth does and it's the same principle right it's like you can be a legitimate heir and this this um, fixation on bastards uh, it filters down to lower classes but it really comes practically from this kind of anxiety over succession of thrones and property and inheritance law. And so, like, if you are married, if you are born to the woman who is married to the king, you get to be the prince. Yeah. Right? And it's just, like, practical solution to you always know who the mother is you don't ever know a hundred percent who the father is so you just know who the mother's married to that's true that's and it just filters down to like now you know tessie doesn't act there's no inheritance i guess (laughs) what it comes from for me is this like kind of americanized purity culture thing where if you were to have a baby five months after getting married in the kind of culture where you're saving yourself for your wedding everyone's gonna look sideways at you like that's where you know oh i was saving myself till marriage oh my baby was three months premature wink wink that's where the stigma would come in nowadays in that kind of you know purity culture situation yeah, you're putting there. I don't think it's that's where the stigma. I think it, that's also there would still be stigma. Yes, yes, that's also where the stigma is. So just, I think that that's where my brain is coming from so hard that it that I forget that it's about you know the literal birth rather than the conception. Yeah, and it, I just to say again, maybe I'm repeating myself, but it's weird when you stop and think about it how. Uh, lower classes uh, adopt the practices that really only make, adopt the prejudices and Mm. stigmas and practices that first uh, started because of the practical necessities of like upper classes whose worries are not relevant. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Do you want to talk about Yes, I do. Um, So Susan is flippin' adorable. Oh, yeah. I don't know what they do to this baby to make her look like Susan. I don't know if it's CGI or, like, uh, like prosthetic things that they put on her, but it looks really realistic. It's well done. I don't think she actually is a baby with these deformities so i saw something about it i forget the details but yeah it's a mix of prosthetics and cgi and she is she has she has fully formed limbs yeah the baby um she like her little face is flippin adorable and like perfect casting for someone who they refer to as 
the father says that you know she's got a beautiful face and all Most this stuff beautiful. yeah and but i love um that she's back that rhoda is uh being followed up on when so mm-hmm. many of our mothers that we see we don't see again so many babies that we see we don't see again but the, so that but baby susan is one that we're going to see here again where it's not just a simple you know she the father finally loved the baby and the end of the episode there's some struggles there he still struggles people cross the street because they don't want to be faced with her and, yeah, and in the uh, nursery when Rhoda has her all wrapped up and the woman sitting next to her is like isn't she hot there's a line that I wonder what you think of the woman next to her says you can unwrap her I don't mind mm-hmm. does that mean the woman knows Susan's deal yeah I'm sure it definitely does yeah but there's like Speaking of stigma. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of babies getting stigma for things that are not their fault. Exactly. Um, then, of course, we have the Sister Evangelina moments of this part of the recap, which is uh, she talks to Barbara, who has a bunch of poop all over her apron, adorably, and she's like, you know, relate to the mother how much she's feeding. Maybe that's a bit much. Which is shows both her, like... Uh, practicality and her expertise of like she can look at poop on an apron and not be like gross let's get you another apron she can also be like uh assess what the situation is what the problem might be of that happening and tell someone else to take care of it yeah it's a real moment that shows the expertise that comes with experience Mm -hmm. um and she's trying to continue to be of use without actually holding infants, holding babies is a two-arm job, she says. So mm-hmm. She's not going to do any actual interacting with babies. And there's, e- I mean, we know by the end of the episode, uh, or by even the middle of the episode, that that changes a little. But at this point already, we see what a loss that is mm-hmm. because her experience and expertise she can tell Barbara to tell things but like now there's uh, her she's it is still useful for her to be washing things but like that is not where her uh, experience and expertise is best put to use for the community or for herself and it's just sad and we also uh, in this episode throughout about her we see both uh, good old sister Evangelina and she is the way she's always been, but also she has been away at the silent order and has changed. She is making the choice of like, no, I'm not going to handle babies. I am aware of my own weakness in a brand new way. And that uh, her whole journey that we've seen so far on this show of making mistakes and recognizing her own weakness and going and, you know, having surgery a couple seasons ago and then going away to uh, find, you know, solace and connection with God again and then to come back and still be her same core self, but changed as well. Yeah. And I, I was love that. I say with this moment... Like, 
We have seen her step back from midwifery before in, like, moments of shame and guilt and self-recrimination, and mm-hmm. this does not feel like that. Not at all. It's like, it's a two-arm job, I have one arm, I'm going to do something that's helpful. Like, it's sad to see the, uh, on one hand, it's sad to see her experience not being put directly to use, but on the other hand, her experience still is put to use because she can still advise Barbara, and she seems, you know, wistful about it, but not bitter or angry or guilty or shameful about it, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, exactly. She, the other thing with Sister Evangelina in this section is, uh, she is trying to ner- to nap uh, and all the nurses are being so chatty. They're yeah. talking about pantyhose. What's pantyhose? It's a new invention. They've had it in America. And like, uh, just of all, I, I really love that conversation because of all things you could have them talking about to annoy Sister Angelina. It's like new American underwear to like have silky, sexy legs. Yeah, it's exactly. So funny to have her be like. Argh. <laughs> And she's been living in a silent convent for months. Yeah. Nay, like, almost, yeah, like, six months. And so no wonder, like, these little conversations are so much more irritating. (laughs) She doesn't have five minutes to gather her thoughts before Compline. Like, no kidding. That would be especially irritating. And that's the other thing I love about this all this lead up to before she dies is it's not all positive it's not all rosy you know we do see some really rosy moments but we also see her being like annoyed and herself we also see this moment of her trying to rest is a bit of a like yeah it's a clue clue that physically she is not uh as well as she once was Mm -hmm. not it's not just the arm yeah because we've never seen her like napping before. No, never. Uh, so that's an unusual behavior for her, and we... Yeah, like, that's a funny scene, and also foreshadowing it in context, like, when you've seen the whole thing and you look back, it's obviously uh, very foreshadowy. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other little thing that we uh, went past quickly but I just don't want to not mention is back to the Mullockses and that uh, Dr. Turner, Mrs. Mullocks can't sleep and he prescribes her Distavel. Yes, and so that Distavel is thalidomide. It's the same drug, it's just different names for it. We know that by the end of the episode, they make that clear, but just at this point, it's such a, like, it's such a a twist of the knife Mm -hmm. that he's prescribing her, this is the first time she's prescribed, by the end of the episode we know, this is the first time she's prescribed it, actually. Yeah. Not the first time she took it, but that he prescribes it, it's like, it's just a mild sedative, it's super too rhodomolex holding Susan in her arms, is just like... Yeah, it's a gut punch. Yeah. Um, so the last pregnant woman we have in this, uh, section, in this episode is, uh, Mrs. Tripti Valuk, who is a Saletti woman, and Barbara going to see her is such a callback to Barbara was the first one to interact with yeah. these women who speak Saleti, and now there's more of them, and uh, we learn later in the episode that she's learning to speak a few words in it, and uh, she's so happy. 
Trifty, like, she lives in, like, there's bugs, and she's doing her best, and she's saying, you know, like, it's not home, but it's our new home, and she's just, like, it's very, like, a standard, you know, birth that they attend all the time. Yeah. I feel like its placement in this episode is very, this is your your standard East End, now there's new immigrant women births. Yeah, I didn't have much to say about it in this section, because it's at this point is like the husband's on shift work and the living accommodations are rough but uh they're but it's those are things we see all the time and they're all everyone is coping with it great basically mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> all right so let's move on to the next part of our recap take it away tessie visits violet's shop and orders new baby things violet advises her to sign up with the sisters at nanata's house Later, Mitchell brings home a very pregnant Noel to a welcoming, if a bit judgmental, Tessie. Delia and Trixie meet in a cafe and discuss Delia's passport. They also see a woman putting gin in her coffee who has been there often. The nuns unpack a pile of boxes from the mother house, one of which holds wedding dresses, and they spend time reminiscing about how they wore them to make their vows. Tripti goes into labor, and Barbara brings Sister Evangelina to assist her. They chat about languages, Yiddish, and Saleti that they've learned to help the mothers. When they leave, Sister Evangelina admonishes Fred for a flat tire. While Barbara assists Tripti, Sister Evangelina helps clean and bathe the baby girl. When they arrive back home, they find that the cake is gone from the tin, and Sister Monica Joan is to blame. Instead, they have tea and Sister Evangelina falls asleep by the fire. Let's talk about uh, Tessie and Noel first. There's yep. not a ton to say, but what you said in your notes is exactly what I wrote in mine, which is uh, Tessie's brusque and judgmental, but actually she seems welcoming. And she does, exactly. Enough. Like, she's like, call me mom. You know, she's judgmental because her son went off and got a girl pregnant and came back and then has to bring her with like it a little judgment is is required maybe here (laughs) maybe not required but But understandable (laughs) understandable there you go understandable but uh i wanted to put out a banner but i didn't want you to think we were common yeah (laughs) like i actually found this whole interaction very endearing for jesse exactly like the her first interaction she's like oh this stupid son they and the government sucks and he got some girl pregnant and we gotta do it fast and she's like rolling over everything and then she actually sees noelle and she's i think very endearing yeah exactly yeah and actually i didn't quite think it till i said this but She's a little sister of Angelina. Yeah, that's a good point. Is like a prickly exterior, but uh, actually kind when mm-hmm. it comes to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk about the nuns and the boxes. Yes, absolutely. The first, I mean, quickly before we get to the most interesting part... Uh, they unpack some box, some books. They unpack mm, a book, the collected yes. works of Walter Scott, mm-hmm. who uh, wrote about the Middle Ages, most notably Ivanhoe, which features Robin Hood, and The Lady of the Lake, a narrative poem featuring King Arthur, of course. Um, and uh, so it was very much like looking back on the past and romanticizing it, mm-hmm. is what Walter Scott is. 
And Jessica's First Prayer is the other book. Do you, are you familiar with that Not at all? Not at all. It is a Victorian children's book uh, about a girl abandoned by her alcoholic mother in London, and she finds religion by befriending a Methodist coffee shop owner, and then teaches everyone to be better, and herself becomes better by uh, discovering religion. Mm-hmm. Um, Wikipedia claims it sold ten times more copies than Alice in Wonderland, which is published <laughs> like a year, within a year or two. Uh, I have never heard of it. Yep. It's very typical uh, Victorian moralistic book, sounds yeah. like to me. <laughs> and it's really the start of a trend uh, that continued at least into the 20th century. I don't know if they're still making them now. I feel like uh, there's a real gap in... I was about to say it continues, but there's a real gap right now of, like, middle school books. But a real trend of, like, orphan in the city Mm, books. This was the first one. Yeah. Like, orphan in the city who makes good because of Victorian morals. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Both of these are about romanticism in different ways. Mm -hmm. About, like, uh, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses kind of kind of thing mm-hmm. um and it is connected i think to like like it's a commentary on that one that one nun that sister evangelina says there was something about her i could never tell if it was romance or violence yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's something weird about her uh clearly it was romance if those are her two books but also romance and violence are connected to each other mm-hmm. um Romance with a capital R, like, seeing the world in idealism is connected to violence also. Um, but it's also, like, how do you... The the balance between looking at the world as it is, looking at the world through an idealized, romanticized uh, filter, or looking at the world kind of overly harshly in a way that ignores the real mm-hmm. beauty and romance of it. And we see that playing out in this whole episode, in this whole show. Mm-hmm. And then they open up the, the wedding the dresses. The wedding dresses. That was so neat to me. I actually don't think I knew. I mean, obviously I've seen this episode before, but I'd forgotten. I didn't think I knew about that they wore wedding dresses to take their vows. And I did a little bit of research. And of course, when you research nuns, all that comes up is Catholic nuns. Yeah. So it's hard to find a lot of references to Anglican nuns. But it is definitely a tradition uh, that has waxed and waned, and still some women do it not so much. Some nuns do it not so much in an actual wedding dress, but in like a white dress that they might call their wedding dress for becoming the bride of Christ. Um, But I love this, like women donated their wedding dresses for the nuns to wear. And we have the detail of Sister Julienne's wedding dress had silver lace threading that she had to pick out by hand mm-hmm. because it was too fancy. And Sister Winifred and Sister Monica Jones shared a dress. This was, you know, that many years between them. Yeah. It would have been like 40 years at least. Like Sister Winifred is quite young. And so, and they wore, and it was the same dress for both of them. That that I loved. I love that connection between the two of them. And of course then Sister Evangelina, you know, I didn't ever want to wear a dress. I didn't, uh, 
this is just, you know, a bunch of lace and frivolities. This, I never had a dream of, of being married. And uh, it's just, I love this moment. And poor uh, Sister Mary Cynthia, who didn't get to wear one. Yeah. Because they had stopped the practice by the mm-hmm. time she took her vows. That she was just did her vows in her habit. Mm-hmm. And they say, like, the look on your face was worth uh, any wedding dress. But it's like, she still feels a little wistful about it. Mm-hmm. Sister Monica Joan quotes uh, from a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Who is one of my absolute favorite poems. Yep. Poets. <laughs> who is one of my absolute favorite poets. Um... The poem that she quotes is called Heaven Haven. Mm-hmm. The subtitle is A Nun Takes the Veil. So it is exactly about what it seems to be about in this context. And she quotes half of it. The whole poem is, uh, she says, We have desired to go where springs not fail. But the, the poem says, I. I have desired to go where springs not fail, to fields where flies no sharp and sided hail. And a few lilies blow. I have asked to be where no storms come, where the green swell is in the havens dumb, and out of the swing of the sea. Hmm. It's an image of nunnery, an image of, of taking the veil of as peaceful and Without of the swell, out of the swing of the sea, no sharpened sided hail. And it's, I think, a beautiful poem and a beautiful mm-hmm. moment. And the, all of the nuns having this moment of, like, understanding each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have often seen Sister Evangelina in the swing of the sea, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... She, they all, like, she's like, well, on that, Kate, on that note, let's go have cake or whatever. Yeah. Let's go have our tea. But I think they all understand this uh, sentiment. Um, and that even though Sister Evangelina didn't want a fancy wedding dress with frills and bows, she also did desire to go where springs not fail. Mm-hmm. And it's also this poem makes an explicit connection between... A haven, a, like, port in the storm is life in a convent and heaven. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, there's an explicit connection in the title and an implicit connection in the imagery of, like, a life of peace and contemplation and uh, um, communion with God is what drives the nun to the veil and is also what she gets in heaven. So let's move on to Tripti and the birth scene that we have. Um, Barbara decides to take Sister Evangelina with her, despite Sister Evangelina's protests. Like She's like, I can't hold babies, I'm not doing the baby thing anymore. But Barbara, you know, convinces her that she needs just a little bit more help because they're in a the situation that we've seen again and again in the East End, where they don't have water in their home, they have to, they don't have a washroom in their home, they don't have anything. Yeah, uh, the, the, the birthing suite yeah. <laughs> is lacking in some amenities. <laughs> yes, but but the but the mother still wants to give birth on her own bed as to kind of claim it as her own, which I think is an interesting thing. 
I think this birth uh, chosen as Sister Evangelina's last birth is fitting because it's uh, it's like the older East End where they don't have the amenities. It's uh, I want to give birth in my own bed like people used to, except they still do, but there is a trend more in the hospital or maternity yeah. home births these days. We've seen a movement this season and last season, but especially this season, towards hospital or the maternity home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still We still are seeing births at home, but we're definitely seeing a, a move this season. Mm-hmm. So it does feel like this birth at home does feel even in the show a little old-fashioned just a little yeah it does it feels like first season yeah for sure um what do you make of their conversation about yiddish and saleti i think on this whole interaction like the conversation is a great jumping off point but the whole thing i was gonna say about barbara and sister evangelina and maybe i'll say it and put it on the back burner while I answer your question, but it's like, do you feel like uh, Barbara's pushing Sister Evangelina to get into midwifery again? Is that, like, Barbara seeing something that Sister Evangelina needs? Is it just Barbara needs help? Or is it Barbara is driven by the plot? (laughs) And then the connection over the languages is a little bit the same. Like, it's a really sweet moment. It doesn't... It strikes me as slightly un uh slightly out of character for sister evangelina to say to barbara like you remind me of a young me uh but it strikes me as extremely in character and and lovely that uh sister evangelina you learned some words of yiddish and barbara's learning some words of saleti and mm-hmm. that they are I, I don't really think Sister Evangelina sees herself in Barbara. I think the audience sees, <laughs> can, yeah. can see uh, some Sister Evangelina in Barbara. Um, but the the language... Uh, I, I'm so interested in languages that Sister Evangelina said some things and I was like, well, I speak enough German and Yiddish is really uh, German, like a variety of low German. So I'm like, do I understand what she's saying? And then she translates it like half a breath later. And I'm like, oh, well, I was right, but <laughs> so the head is coming. Is what yeah. she says. Or I can see the head. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really uh, lovely moment. And I totally uh, like this memory of Sister Evangelina learning Yiddish to speak to Jewish mothers mm-hmm. in her younger days as a midwife that sound that seems exactly in character and exactly like it does and yet in the moment where barbara says little bits of saleti and she and sister evangelina repeats after her little bits of saleti and for a moment you almost think she's going to admonish her and be like that's a bit silly but of course she's not of course, yeah. she's like, that's a lovely thing to do to learn those that language. And she's been away for a lot of Barbara's uh, learning these things. And so for her to come back and see Barbara 
coming into her own when, I mean, Sister Evangelina was right there when Barbara first came and was, she was rolling her eyes at all of her mistakes and all of her, you know, early novice things. And now she's almost seeing her as an equal and like passing the torch onto her. And even though I, yeah, I agree that they're not, it's a little silly to compare them because they're not alike at all, but it is a passing of the torch in this moment. Yeah. Also in this whole birth scene, um, Tripti talks about, like, she she wants to give birth at home, even though her home isn't the most, uh, clean and comfortable and with amenities. And then one of the other things she talks about is, like, lying in her country, they would lie on the floor with the baby for, how long does she say? Uh, and they would have a, a quiet private place, and even here, they'll just, they won't have the quiet private place, but they they still will be mother and baby together without the father for a couple of days, hours, I forget how long. Yeah. Uh, and Sister Evangelina is like, oh, that's lovely, get the man away. Yeah. <laughs> Sister Evangelina has a long history of not really seeing the point of men. No, definitely not. <laughs> like, she, she's definitely a nun. <laughs> <laughs> like no men in the no men in the birthing room. Uh Sister Evangelina is like, you know, if no men can be around while the baby is a while the <laughs> infant is young, that would be great too. Yep. <laughs> it's true. And like the humor of Sister Evangelina being so delighted that uh, Tripti wants her husband to go away is uh, tempered, it was, like, is paired also with, like, I think the father bonding with the baby is an important and good thing, too, but mm-hmm. also this tradition of, like, the mother and baby spending time, the two of them together, is lovely. Mm-hmm. I would add the father, too, but, uh, <laughs> I'm a little biased, I suppose. I think, I think daddies want their babies. Mm-hmm. So she does eventually relent to bathing the baby due to the circumstances that the baby needs to be bathed and there's no more power. Mm-hmm. Um, and this moment she says, like, this, you've been here before. This baby has, you know, seen things. Is like, And so she's relating the culture. Like, Sister Evangelina doesn't believe in reincarnation because she's an Anglican nun and that would go against her belief system. But she knows that that means something to this woman here whose likely belief system does include that. And her gentleness and her uh, love for this infant in this yeah. moment is just, it's a side that we see of her. We both see like the kind of harsh uh, side, but we always see this gentle side to her. And in this moment to see just a typical birth where like the placenta is a little late and so we need to, bathe the baby in what's available, you know, it's just, it's the perfect last birth for Sister Evangelina to experience and to be a part of. I loved the way this whole scene was shot, and particularly Mm -hmm. the way that we follow Sister Evangelina during the birth, and so she, like, goes away to wash things, Mm. and we hear the sound of the birth, and the crying of the baby, and the camera just stays on her, and we see her face. Mm-hmm. I thought that was beautifully shot. Yeah. And that, like, she can't help getting involved in the birth, and it's not because it, it would take just a little difference in the directing and the acting to make it be like, she's a bossy bitty, busybody who can't help getting involved. But the way it's all framed is like, she just loves uh, 
her work and the mothers and the babies so much that she can't help but uh, hold the baby and love it and love being there and it makes me love her and love mm -hmm. like it's beautiful. It is a beautiful last birth for her. Yeah. Um. So they go back to Nanatis and so this is her last conversation with Sister Monica Joan is over the cake. And <laughs> despite the part of me is like, does her last conversation with Sister Monica Joan have to be an argument and her berating her for eating the cake? But yeah, it does. <laughs> it's kind of perfect. I can see why the, the writers decided to put that as her last, really her last scene in general is like, we just wanted some cake, fine, I'll have some tea and just sit by the fire, and that's her last meal. Yeah, I think the, uh, like, if if her last scene with Sister Monica Joan was like, oh, you have the cake, you've earned it, it would just be so saccharine. Yeah, exactly. And it would be so, like, she needs to continue to be the character that she has been. She, mm -hmm. Sister Monica Joan would eat the last of the cake and Sister Evangelina will be mad at her about it. Exactly. Like, I thought it was just right. Yeah. They do have... It's a great mix. In this... In the first half of this episode, before she dies, it's a, such a good mix of, you know, sweet moments and Sister Evangelina's changes that she's gone through and stereotypical exactly what would always happen is she's always going to... Uh, great against Sister Monica Jones. She's always going to be a little bit bossy in the birthing suite of like, let's not bring out the gas and air yet. And it's it's a really good send off of her. I agree. It was a little like, I feel like even if you didn't know her lying, her sitting next to the fire and getting tucked in and having the tea is like, oh. Mm-hmm. And then we have cut to the next morning when yeah. she is still there. Yeah. So let me read the next recap here. Go ahead. Without crying. <laughs> Early the next morning, Fred discovers that Sister Evangelina has passed away in the night. We see everyone's reactions, and they discuss whether there will have to be a post-mortem or not. Sister Monica Joan weeps over the idea of them altering her body by doing an autopsy. Dr. Turner comes home to a crying Sheila, who reveals it is not just for Sister Evangelina, but the discovery that Distival is what caused the deformities in the babies. Sister Mary Cynthia visits Noel to check on her pregnancy, and they discuss her colorful wedding outfit. She returns to Nanatus and discusses with Sister Julianne about giving Noel Sister Evangelina's wedding dress. Fred sits with Sister Evangelina's bike to repair it and talks to Tom about Sister Evangelina's lack of pleasantries and what he should do. Sister Julianne and Phyllis go to the clinic to meet with a distraught Dr. Turner about the recall of Distival. They begin to research the connections of Susan and Ruby Cottingham's baby, as well as retrieving all the pills that the women have in the district. So where do you want to do the Distival or the Sister Evangelina well, first? Well, let's talk about Sister Evangelina first. I mean, we've been leading up to this. Yeah. this is, she does die. The moment where Fred, you know, he's just ch chatting with her at the fire and he drops the um, fireplace pokers and stuff and 
she doesn't react and he realizes that yeah she's gone um i think fred is the right person to find her for some yeah. reason it just fits that it would be someone practical like him meet, finding her in a practical simple way yeah and I like, too, that we don't get much beyond, like, we don't get him going and rushing and telling anyone. We don't no. get, we just get a cut straight from he finds her to everyone crying. It's been, it's known. Yeah. If we follow Fred, like, he finds her. Uh, I think I agree. It's it's a, Fred's part in this section, I think, is well written and acted and very, like, uh Optimum Fred, because he comes in so chatty in, like, a way that would have annoyed her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the fact that she's not annoyed is the tip-off. Yeah, exactly. And, but good-naturedly annoyed, and then he, go when he goes out and is, like, sitting by the bicycle to mm-hmm. fix it, and, like, that is a very... I mean, that's a, a common thing in fiction. It's a common thing in reality, too, mm-hmm. like... I'm going to now do what it's too late, what she wanted me to do when and I had a chance to and didn't, and I'm going to do it now that it's pointless. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so he's sitting to fix the bicycle that he never fixed when she was alive. Mm-hmm. That's like their last conversation is her berating him for not fixing the uh, bike tire. Yeah. They're the like, there's something wrong with that tire wonder if it might start with P and end with uncture. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So he fixes the tire and then Tom comes out and is like, oh, she would be so grateful and she would say thank you. And he's like, no, she wouldn't. No, she wouldn't. (laughs) I love that. Also, he says that she uh, was a grafter. And I like, that's not a term I'm familiar with. No, me neither. But a grafter means a hard worker. It does not mean a grifter. No, <laughs> not just... not the same thing at all. <laughs> a grafter is a hard worker. She's a grafter, and grafters don't waste time with pleasantries. Mm-hmm. She worked hard on her work. She didn't waste time saying thank you. And not just don't waste time with pleasantries. Like, a grafter doesn't waste time thanking you for doing what you ought to have done all along. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. Like, specifically that. that yeah. Like, she wouldn't say thank you for fixing my the bicycle she would say why didn't you fix it before yeah she would come home and like the phone is broken well what are you doing about it yeah exactly (laughs) that's a grafter right there Mm -hmm. and and he kind of relates it back to like the east end is full of grafters and who might not necessarily say thank you uh but we find that in this uh moment of sister evangelina dying they all come out to say thank you yes they all are moved by her death and show up and uh, line streets and all that thing in a way that would have annoyed her. And we'll, I mean, that's we I'm jumping. I'm that jumping. Yet. I'm jumping ahead a bit, but that's cut, cut, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, gra- a grafter doesn't care about those things, but in the end, they do, and she did care about. Yeah. Anyway, it's so. So good. They have this talk about the autopsy, and Sister Monica Joan cries over the thought of uh, Sister Evangelina's body being 
what she says is like mutilated by an autopsy mm-hmm. because she believes in bodily resurrection uh which i'm like gonna go a tiny bit into the weeds right now but like that's the correct theology that's the orthodox theology uh <laughs> <laughs> lots of people uh think that the the christian teaching is that like the soul is immortal but that's greek uh, that's the kind of thing that you might expect Sister Monica Joan, who gets her Greek mythology and her Christianity a little mixed up sometimes, but she is uh, more orthodox than most people here, that like bodily resurrection is what the body, the Bible teaches, and that means that the autonomy and, uh, uh, not autonomy, but the integrity of the body, even after death, is important. The official orthodox teaching is that bodily resurrection but healed so you can do an autopsy because if god can bring the body back he can also put your organs back (laughs) (laughs) uh but she's concerned about like sister evangelina is going to be resurrected uh with the body that she had and so if you cut it all up to do an autopsy um she's concerned about the future i think the rest of the nuns are more concerned about just like it's upsetting to cut up her body in the present mm-hmm. um, and unnecessary and unnecessary we know why she died she doesn't need an autopsy mm-hmm. and they they end up concluding that she doesn't need an autopsy but it's an interesting concern that mm-hmm. they have and expressed by sister monica jones so uh emphatically and passionately um Anything else? Well, the the bulk of the funeral and the reaction all happens yeah. in the next section. Is there anything else, Sister Evangelina? Rel- oh, th- yes, there is. All the relation to uh, Sister Mary Cynthia and Noel. Yeah, so Sister Mary Cynthia goes and sees Noel, and she's got this beautiful like dress that's all colorful that she's brought over from Australia. But she is sad that she's not getting her nice white wedding dress. And I love Sister Mary Cynthia talking to Sister Julianne, and she says, you know, I heard Sister Evangelina's voice in my head is like, mm-hmm. Tessie for a mother-in-law, and no, not a, not even a wedding dress, give her mine. And absolutely... Give her mine, for pity's sake. For pity's sake, exactly. And like, yeah, that is what Sister Evangelina would say. And I love that she gets it. And like, when, like, later in the episode, it's very altered, like, they've taken off all the lace and stuff, but she has a wedding dress that is big enough to wear because Noelle is slender but pregnant, and Sister Evangelina was a bigger woman, so it all fits fits together. (laughs) Yeah, the issue with the wedding dress, just to, like, spell it out, is, like, she has a colorful wedding dress because she's shouldn't have a white wedding dress because she's obviously not a virgin but then also she and even tessie her mother-in-law are like that's tessie's first thought like okay you could have a white wedding dress that's not really that big a deal but then the next difficulty is there's none that fit her because Mm -hmm. she's nine months pregnant and needs to get married immediately so there's no time to alter alter it yeah just to spell all that out like that's why the colorful wedding dress is uh a thing yeah so Distival, so so Distival. I'm using kind of Distival in place of thalidomide because that's what they're doing. But like thalidomide, Distival, same thing. I think I mentioned that earlier. Distival is the brand name. Yeah, Distival is the brand name. So, uh, 
Patrick comes home to Sheila crying and he's like, you know, he just assumes, of course, that it's about Sister Evangelina. And she's like, no, I, you know, I thought I might, but I know that she wouldn't want me to. And then I'm crying because this drug that we've given our patients is being recalled for birth defects that has been this thread the entire season in a way that I don't think up until now there hasn't been something like this in this show where you've built where you've had a mystery yeah. in like the first episode wasn't it with Susan and Rhoda I think so and not finding out until the last episode within the show and like we obviously talked about it because it was a real thing and we knew but within the world of the show they didn't reveal it until the last episode of the season and so that does like reflect real life is you'll have these mysteries and like why are these babies being born deformed and and then the reveal of like this drug that he is we've seen him prescribing including in this episode he prescribed it to Rhoda and it's just a gut punch yeah yeah and there's there's It's very distressing. Mm-hmm. It's very distressing for the characters. It's very distressing for the audience. Like, yeah. I knew, obviously, because we've talked about it lots, uh, what was going on, but the, like, moment of discovery, of realization, and that, like, we have to find every pill yeah. that's in this district and get it them back. Yeah. Uh, that hasn't quite happened yet. But, uh... No, it has. Yeah. Um, we have to find every pill in this district, and they, they have to, like, trace everybody's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did these women get Distavel? And, like, because it's prescription, but also it was prescribed with the frame of, like, it's a mild sedative, it's not that big a deal. And so mm-hmm. people are sharing the medicine, which... You know, people, if they were warned that this is a really serious drug, wouldn't have. So even though he didn't prescribe it to Rhoda when she was pregnant, he still feels responsible for her taking it while she was pregnant because he didn't give her warnings about it. Yeah. Like, uh, he being Dr. Chern. Yeah. He is, like, blames himself, and on one hand, uh, I totally get it, he feels guilty, he feels responsible, and to some degree is, even though he could not have known, No, he still is the one who prescribed it, so he still is responsible, if not guilty, Yeah, right? So I totally get it, but on the other hand, I'm watching this scene of Dr. Turner blaming himself makes me, I'm like, okay, your self-recriminations aren't helping anyone, like, move forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's allowed a little bit of grief, though. If he hadn't had that yes. grief, he'd be like, why doesn't he feel bad about this? It's true. It's true. But, like, I... And that he gets... They get uh, Nurse Mount is uh, good with a Rolodex and good under pressure. And yeah. Like, who which, who do we need to help us? And, like, it, Patsy totally is one who... Absolutely. Is no nonsense in a crisis. Yeah, and a good researcher. Yeah. All right, let's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, nothing. Let's move on to the last section. The nuns pray over Sister Evangelina's body, and when the undertaker arrives, he offers everything free of charge, 
revealing that Sister Evangelina saved his life at birth. Phyllis, Patsy, and the Turners research who has taken the pills, and it's discovered that Rhoda's sister had the pills. Sister Julienne finds Ruby in the cafe. She had been the woman Delia saw earlier. Sister Julianne reveals to her why her baby died. The people of Poplar line up to pay their respects to Sister Evangelina in her coffin. Phyllis and Trixie get their funeral clothes ready, and Trixie reveals her loneliness, saying that she doesn't want a man, but Phyllis says she doesn't think Trixie fits being a spinster and shouldn't pretend it does. Delia and Patsy meet with Delia's mother to talk about her, about Delia becoming a midwife and going to Paris. Mrs. Busby hints that she knows what's going on with them, but ultimately hands over the birth certificate so Delia can get her passport. At Noel and Mitchell's wedding, she wears Sister Evangelina's wedding dress, but goes into labor at the reception and gives birth in the community center while everyone else is celebrating nearby. The baby boy is born and the dress is ruined, but it's the perfect ending to Sister Evangelina's dress. Dr. Turner and Sheila tell Rhoda the reason for Susan's deformities. She's upset and talks about the, the difficulties of having to deal with other people and her husband. Mature Jenny narrates about the loss we see as the procession for Sister begins for Sister Evangelina's funeral. Due to the lack of flowers, Sister Monica Joan puts her well-worn shoes on top of the coffin, and everyone follows the hearse. The streets are crowded with people wanting to pay their respects, as mature Jenny narrates how she would have been irritated that work came to a standstill just for her. Let's continue on the uh, Distavel yeah, exactly. plot first. Um, this I, I referenced this. I lost track of what happened before or after what you'd recapped or not, even though I have your recap in writing in front of me. But <laughs> uh, what I said about Rhoda's sister is the one who had the pills yeah. is revealed here that Rhoda wasn't prescribed but still got the pills and they tracked where they came from and how they got them. Um, and, uh... And Ruby Cottingham was prescribed them long before she got pregnant, but would have still had them in her cupboard. And, uh, I like the way Phyllis says to Dr. Turner, like, people do that. Like, as a doctor, you might think, like, well, I prescribed them something. That was a long time ago, but people keep pills people around. Pills. We have pills in our closet that we were prescribed and still have yeah maybe uh should do something about that <laughs> yeah but um this is the ruby is the woman that delia saw earlier putting gin in her coffee mm -hmm. so the patsy is like she looks familiar somehow and did you recognize her not at all no yeah, me neither but then we because we've only seen her once before in a totally different context mm -hmm. and they don't show her very no they don't show her very clearly then but then we come back to her, and this is the woman who's always at the cafe putting gin in her coffee is Ruby Cottingham, who's, uh, uh, just as a reminder, her, her, uh, child died in birth with its gender unknown, uh, mm -hmm. and Sister Evangelina, that was the baby that Sister Evangelina found abandoned in a, uh, room next to the window to die. Um... Not Sister Evangelina, Sister Julianne. Sister Julianne. Sister Julianne, found in the hospital, left alone. And so Sister Julianne is the one who comes to Ruby and tells her 
what happened to her baby, and it's, like, a very painful scene, but also, uh, like, I remember talking a c couple of episodes ago about, like, Sister Julienne was very conflicted about whether she should tell Ruby the deal with her baby, uh, whether it was kinder not to tell, and... I remember feeling like it left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, even though it was kinder that, like, medical professionals need to be honest. Mm-hmm. And here we have her go and be honest, and now that they know, especially. Yeah. And it's really painful for Ruby and Sister Julianne and the audience, but I think a really necessary moment, not just because the reveals have come out, but also because... Like, it was right to tell her the truth anyway, even if it was hard. Mm-hmm. And she allows her to take one last pill. Yeah. Oh, because oh she, the moment... Jeez oh. Louise, when she's like, it was the, the distaville, and Ruby takes them out of her pocket. Yeah. Has them with her. It's like, oh, you'll probably be wanting these back then. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... Distaville, or the thalidomide, does still exist as a drug. It is used... Still, just with massive warnings about pregnant for pregnant women, and so therefore, honestly, it's usually mostly prescribed to men, just in case. But so, like, it's not a problem for her to take one more. Yeah. But it is not okay to get pregnant while taking them. Uh, and she does. I mean, like, and this is the nature of uh, uh, reproduction is. Neither Sister Julienne nor Ruby know for sure that Ruby's not pregnant. Yeah, exactly. Right? She's almost certainly not, but they don't know for sure. Yeah. So, well, I mean, Ruby would know when she's had sex with her husband, so... Yeah, <laughs> Um, But it's true, like, I I think it's a, a gentle choice to let her take that last pill. Yeah, I agree. Even though it feels like, oof, really... <laughs> Uh, and then they talk to Rhoda. Yeah. Oh, the actress who plays Rhoda is so good. I agree. The way, and the actress who plays Susan is like ridiculously cute in this scene. Her little face, like looking up at her mom and just like, oh, she's like little angelic curly haired baby. It's so friggin' cute. <laughs> Literally my only note for the last quarter of the <laughs> show is Jeez Louise, baby Susan is adorable. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's the only thing I wrote for this whole section. Anyway, the actress who plays Rhoda, like, oh, I feel like she deserves awards for this scene where she is both devastated and then she admonishes herself like oh Rhoda why'd you t have to take those pills why couldn't you just carry on and like yeah. oh exactly like that feeling of guilt of like I had to take these pills because I couldn't handle things at that and then like why did I take them in general that there's now this guilt that has to be on her shoulders in, in the past she could like she could feel bad about her baby but not know why. And she did ask why in the original episode. Uh, but then... But now she actually has a reason, mistake. and it actually is her mistake. Except, of course, she didn't know. There was no way she could have known. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I it's also, just heartbreaking. Like you said, I uh, find it so heartbreaking and well... Like, I... 
love it and I hate it. Yeah. But I love the performance and writing mm-hmm. of why did you have to you couldn't just live with being uncomfortable. You had to take a pill. Yeah. That like she's not recriminating herself as if she should have known, but that like taking a pill in general is weakness. Oh. And uh if she was a better person, she would have just lived with her discomfort, but she always has to try to solve things with a pill, she says. And it's so Ooh, painful and, and so, so relatable. And so, like, yeah. Yeah, it's a really compelling scene. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked... We, we um... In this whole conversation about uh, thalidomide, we mentioned Delia noticing Ruby. Uh, that brings us to... Do you want to talk about Delia and Patsy? Yeah. So, this meeting with her mother. Do you think that her mother knows the oh, deal yeah. with... Yeah. Her mother says... Okay. Her mother says, I'm not an uns... Actually, I'll even back up. Patsy is like, she's going to come to Paris with me. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to Paris together. And her mother says, you two are thick as thieves, aren't you? And then she says, I'm not an unsophisticated woman. I've been to the Isle of Man. And the and Isle Delia of Delia says, I haven't. Hey-o! <laughs> 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 no, Delia says, I haven't. I wrote the hey But, like, Delia has not been to the Isle of Man. But I'm not an unsophisticated woman. Yeah, it does feel like Absolutely. I know what's going it on means, here. Like I know, I'm not stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm in denial, and I am not gonna talk about it openly because, you know, reasons. But I'm not an unsophisticated woman. That doesn't mean I understand the need to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've been to the Isle of Man. It seems like a non sequitur, but it means I have seen more than my little sheltered corner of the world. Yeah. I've been outside of Wales. I've been outside of <laughs> Wales. I've been outside of England, even. I mean, the Isle of Man is politically England, but I've been outside of the Isle of Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, the Isle of Man has not always been uh, politically England, but... <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go down that road, please. <laughs> okay, in Arthurian... Le- no, not a third <laughs> uh, Arthurian story um, in this Call the Midwife podcast. But yeah, I, I, I think she definitely knows what's going on with, like, the nature of Delia and Patsy's relationship, even though she doesn't want to really talk about it. Mm-hmm. And the Isle of Man as a uh, metaphor for being sheltered. Like, I've been to the Isle of Man, I've been off of Wales, I've been out of my little sheltered corner of the world, I'm sophisticated, and Delia's saying I haven't. And, like, I made a joke because of the Isle of Man, but it is, like, you have made me more sheltered than you are yourself. Mm-hmm. Is, like... You know, an important thing to, for her mother to hear. Yeah. That you are trying to make me an unsophisticated woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I just, there's not a ton, uh, I suppose, but I just uh, wanted to really yeah. spend a moment on that scene. Yeah, well, let's let's go back to uh, let's go to the other small scene that we have here is Phyllis and Trixie's conversation. Mm-hmm. So, Phyllis, you know, has noticed Trixie's been she's had a hard season. Mm-hmm. She's and she says it's the loneliness, and she's like, it doesn't have to be a man. It doesn't always have to be a man. But Phyllis is like, 
Yeah, but you know you're not cut out to be a spinster. <laughs> it's like people like me, people like Sister Evangelina, aside from the fact that she was married to Jesus, <laughs> are kind of built to be spinsters. Whereas Trixie is not and doesn't need to pretend to be. Yeah. And on one hand, the like feminist in me is like, she can live without a man. She can do whatever she wants. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm like, I can see where Syphilis is coming from. That, tri- yeah. that Trixie wants that that relationship, that tradition, that uh, romance in her life. Uh, and always has. I think for some of the characters, tradition is is it. But for Trixie, it's not tradition that she wants. It's romance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, like... Yeah, I really liked this little scene because on one hand, people can change and grow and Trixie could become someone who is happy on her own. But I think that uh, Phyllis is quite right that if Trixie says she will be happy on her own, she's currently is lying to herself. Yeah, exactly. That could become true, mm-hmm. but right now it isn't. Yeah. And she but doesn't I, have to pretend that it is. And, but I like that this has been a whole season of like, Trixie's been in... AA for a whole season yeah, and it's not easy. It's not like she magically went to AA, she stopped drinking and everything was great. It has been a difficult thing to go through and it has caused some loneliness and she doesn't have, you know, the time in her room where she makes a drink for everybody and they all go out. They don't go out anymore. They don't, I mean, Patsy is in Delia's room, Barbara has Tom, and so they don't do the same things they used to do as young as young nurses. And that, like, a lot of that does hinge on Trixie's drinking. Yeah. So it's all kind of tangled up together, and her loneliness is uh, the strength that she has shown through this to, to keep sober despite this loneliness is, yeah. is a lot of strength. Yeah, I like Trixie. We were talking a little off microphone about the different, about how Trixie has grown since the first episode of the pilot, that she was a little, uh, you know, a little shallow, uh, flighty and flirty, flighty, flirty, shallow, and a little mean spirited Yeah, in the first season and especially the first episode, uh, and that, you know. I'm rooting for Trixie to come out the other side. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Alright, so... Lastly, Sister Evangelina and yeah. all the people of Poplar. And I love that the Undertaker comes and he's like, I want to pay for everything. And Sister Julian's like, really? Is that necessary? And like, ah, he... And he tells the story of how Sister Evangelina was there when he was born early and sat up with his mother for like a week or whatever it was. And like, Mm -hmm. she saved so many lives in this district. So no wonder they all want to pay their respects. And this is the theme that we've seen through the whole series coming back again of birth and death as mirrors of each other, that the funeral director can uh, guide Sister Evangelina, can help guide Sister Evangelina out of the world as she guided him in mm-hmm. that like he says that he's paying her back what he yeah. owes her and that's not just like a kindness mm-hmm. that's like she 
was with him and his mother and the people who loved him as he came into the world. So he's going to be with the people who love her as she goes out. Yeah. And the thing about her taking her vow of poverty very seriously is she doesn't, there wouldn't be a wreath, a big old wreath on her coffin because she wants to take that vow seriously. And so the loveliness of Sister Monica Joan putting her well-worn shoes and her shoes have been a theme they have. for the whole show. Yeah. Like she wore those like plimsolls for a while because she they found them in the charity bin and all that and like and her definitely her taking her vow of poverty seriously. Yeah. We've seen this is a thing often we do on uh less good TV shows is that like oh, she loved uh Poppies, they were her favorite, and she was always talking about them, and I'm like, she's never mentioned poppies before in her life. Uh, but the shoes are actually were something that mm-hmm. we, the show, cared about already. They're not just pulling it out of the air. Yeah. And the vow of poverty was very important to her. Is something that we are not just being suddenly told. We have seen it in her character from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so much more meaningful. Yeah. Um... Oh, I forgot to talk about uh, sister the dress being ruined at the wedding. Oh, yes. So <laughs> Noelle, of course, goes into labor at the wedding. Like, they get married and she's like, well, I definitely could sit down and like, oh, you're in labor. Uh, <laughs> and the dress, and she like births the baby in her wedding dress, which is completely like, you know, covered in all the viscera of birth. And... And, of course, and that is also this fitting end to this garment that Sister Evangelina didn't want to wear to take her vows because she never dreamed of a wedding, but she did dream of this, of, like, yeah. that this dress may be used for a practical reason to wrap up a brand new newborn and to be with a mother to help her through this birth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a great ending a beautiful symmetry and ending to the mm. wedding dress and to Sister Evangelina's um, presence in Poplar. Mm-hmm. Um. The one thing I wanted to call, call attention to just at the very, very end of the episode that I really liked was it's kind of Sister Evangelina's hearse goes and then all the nuns are mm. right behind it and then all the uh, midwives and nurses and... Trixie steps up beside Sister Mary Cynthia and and they walk together. And I think that that's really important to have the two of them who have been there since the very first episode, who have had this long friendship, who have had this friendship with Sister Evangelina mm-hmm. be together, that there has been a separation between the two of them, but they, but that they would ultimately be comforting each other. I yeah. think that that was a well done moment. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the context of Trixie's loneliness, and that we end with her, you know, in a small way, but connecting with people that with Sister Mary Cynthia, who has been her oldest friend here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, what was what was your favorite part of this episode, Paul? <laughs> My favorite part was uh, Sister Evangelina's face during uh during Tripti's birth mm, when she's out of the room when she's out of the room and we hear yeah. that and like we've seen so many births obviously on this show and one of the things that I love about this show and we've talked about before is that like they're uh all different 
Mm-hmm. And they're all different because the circumstances and the women and the babies are different. But the show also uh, frames them differently. And some of them are the same as each other in the framing and directing. But they they direct this birth. We haven't seen a lot of births off camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought this was beautifully directed. And the focus being on Sister Evangelina was right for the episode. And yeah. it was very moving. And I loved the like warmth and love in her face in mm-hmm. that scene. And then when she hears the baby crying and she's just like so happy. Yeah. That absolutely. was my favorite part. Absolutely. How about you? Oh, that's close. I think when she's actually bathing the baby is my favorite. When she's kind of gently holding her and bathing her and uh, and setting her down the towel and and everything. When she, it's just that whole moment there. Mm. The the lighting, the framing, the gentleness, everything about that this was is, beautiful to me. We didn't talk about it at the time, but uh, bathing is a motif of spiritual care on mm, this show yes always has been and remember uh sister monica joan bathing sister Mary cynthia recently yeah. and remember uh um who was it with her but it was jenny and one of the nuns bathing the woman the homeless woman yeah in that christmas episode i think that was sister angelina i think it was sister Evangelina and jenny and so like you bathe a baby is uh just a usual part of birth but when they focus on bathing uh there's spiritual significance on this show and so sister evangelina bathing that baby is a beautiful moment of intimacy but also of like yeah yeah i agree i can see that yeah it's spiritual, a spiritual as well healing as physical care mm-hmm. yeah that is yeah that's partly why it's my favorite moment uh i also Love what I mentioned, just as Sister Mary Cynthia and Trixie walking together behind the mm. behind the hearse. Uh, oh, what a good episode! What a beautiful send off for a great character. It breaks <sighs> my heart. It breaks my heart that she's gone and that she won't be any in any future episodes. She does not just like no spoilers, but she doesn't come back as a ghost or anything, guys. She's gone. <laughs> <laughs> they break with their traditions of always being haunted by ghosts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's actually funny because um, Charlotte Ritchie, who plays Barbara, is on a show called Ghosts with, uh, yeah, just, that's a really good show, a really funny show. You should watch it. Um, so if you want to talk about and cry about this episode, <laughs> how, how would you do that, Paul? You can talk to us on our Discord, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. You can email us, poplar at clockworksacademy.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Poplar Opinion. And we also exist on Facebook and probably Instagram. We always pop their I don't opinion. think we're on Instagram. Well, Instagram we is connected to Facebook. Oh, true. So, we, like, <laughs> you know, I don't use Instagram at all. But if you do, you could probably find us. <laughs> um, all links to all of that is in the show notes. And if you want to support this show, we would be very grateful. And it would... Uh, make it easier for us to keep making episodes you can support us at patreon.com slash clockworkscast and there's a show note there's a link to that in the show notes as well thank you very much for joining us this week i have been paul moffat i've been jan moffat and that's just my 
popular opinion. I'm making a popular opinion Instagram as you speak. <laughs> Thank you.